Feeling overwhelmed and frustrated by the obstacles you face? Well, you're not alone. The Resiliency Ninja is here to help. Allison Graham is a speaker, author, and business coach. But most importantly, she's on a mission to give you tools to succeed in times when it feels like life sucks. Now, here's your host, Allison Graham. Welcome back to the Resiliency Ninja podcast. I'm your host, Allison Graham. And before I introduce today's guest, I just want to encourage you to connect with me off air. I am active on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and would love to chat with you. So please reach out, say hello, let me know how you're enjoying these podcasts. I am loving hearing from listeners just like you. So please do that. And don't forget to subscribe. And especially if you love this episode, which I've got to give you fair warning, I think is going to go very deep and could be really have some strong messaging in it. So just be prepared for that. But if you know somebody who is in a really tough place right now and they need to hear this message, please be sure to share it with them. I, because I think that this will have a lot of really great information on how to deal with things. And we're actually going to blow through a myth that somebody was talking to me about online. I'll tell you what that is in just a minute. All right. So my guest today is a gentleman by the name of Bradley Callow, and he is revolutionizing the way affluent families teach and learn passion, performance, and perseverance. Despite coming from a really good family and one of the most affluent counties in the United States. Bradley narrowly escaped prison and death. He has quite a tragic story, although I I must admit, Bradley, uh, it would have been a lot more tragic had it ended when you were 26 years old on your knees. Well, actually, I'll let you tell your story, but welcome to the show, Bradley. Oh, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Excited to be here. I I love love the topic resiliency itself is is one of my i think the most profound thing you can teach a, a child so i'm i'm excited to be a part of this it's cool that you're focusing on that subject well thank you and i think that for a lot of people we look at successful people from afar and we think everything's going great in the background and that's not always the case is it i'm sure you i mean you're a good looking guy you've got a family you've got uh, you came from a great family early in your life. I'm sure everybody thought you had it together. And do you want to tell our listeners about what was going on behind the scenes? Yeah, for for me, I, I started using drugs at the age of 11, which, you know, to, to me, even still is, is just mind blowing. I see 11 year old and, and I just can't even comprehend that I was so desperate to escape the way I felt at such an early age. But I, I started using drugs at 11 years old and and I'm an entrepreneur with every fiber of my being. So I started selling drugs at 11 years old as well. And that sort of self-destructive behavior and delinquent behavior just continued and progressed as I got older. But I was always pretty good at hiding it uh, and keeping up, up appearances and, and a good front. And you know, I graduated from high school with honors and, and went off to college. But within a month of going off to college, I was arrested for felony distribution. I was given an opportunity to come back to school after being suspended and, and again, kept up a good front, but all the while was, you know, selling cocaine and, and just destroying myself, you know, drinking myself into blackouts on regular basis and doing enough drugs to, you know, kill, kill a small, small horse. And I got out of college and somehow still did well in college and 
and made my way through and went into the world of, of sales and, and then entrepreneurship. And inside, I was just, I hated myself. I had no self-esteem. I was a lot of self-loathing, a lack of confidence and and just looking for external ways to validate that I was good enough and that I was a worthwhile human being. And and in a place of exhaustion at 26, I found myself on my knees with a gun to my own head. And I'm still not really clear on why I didn't take my life that day, but I didn't. And, and I wish I could say that was my bottom, but I signed myself into rehab not long after and and it didn't go according to plan. And and I, I got out of rehab and relapsed the same day. And, and within a matter of weeks, my new life plan was, was robbing drug dealers and was arrested not long after for shooting a gun out the window in Baltimore City, Maryland. And because I'd signed myself into rehab, the judge showed some leniency with me and allowed me to continue with my treatment process. And I spent almost a year, three months of which I was in a wilderness program where I basically just hiked and lived out in the woods for 90 days, give or take, but it was in the Colorado, Utah wilderness. And it was, uh, that's what ultimately saved my life and decided I'd, I'd start helping people instead of hurting people. And now I travel around the world helping anywhere from you know Fortune 10 executives to Inc. 50 founders and you know, even some royal families in the Middle East to, to help uh, them avoid some of the same struggles and challenges that I did growing up in an affluent family. Wow. Okay. So where do we even start here? Let's see. So let's go back to when you were in university and even in college or no, I guess college, university, same thing. Sorry. When you were in high school, what was it that drove you to continue to graduate? Like you graduated with honors. I would imagine that starting drugs at such a tender age would almost like fry your brain in a way, right? Or am I being stereotypical? And yet you figured out how to maintain the grades and the school and the good appearance. I That's really fascinating because not everybody who gets involved in drugs continues to excel in an academic capacity. What do you think it was that drove you to be able to do that? I think a, an underlying desire to, to prove to the world that I was... I was good enough that I was valuable, that I was uh, someone to be respected. And, and so, you know, selling drugs for me was just another way to get respect. Getting good grades was another way to get respect. You know, going, going off to college was another way to get respect. Going in and starting my own business was another way to, to get respect. And, and ultimately all that respect was about trying to convince myself that I was good enough. And so that's a, that's a powerful motivator. And, it just, it drove me in virtually everything. I, I would tend to oscillate from perfection where I'd strive to to do everything perfect and it just wasn't sustainable as it isn't for anyone. And then I'd get to a place of complete frustration and I would just say, screw this. And I'd swing to the opposite and you know be even more self-destructive and not care about anything. But I spent enough time in the perfection or the striving towards perfection that I made up for those, those downswings. And that perfectionism, is that just innate in you? Like, do you still feel you have to revisit that on a daily basis being like, okay, perfect is not attainable. Is like, cause a lot of us are perfectionists, right? And then we eventually learn you can't do it as you're saying. And, but like, for me, I have to continually remind myself done is better than perfect, <laughs> you know, like, and, and with my clients, like really having that conversation, do you feel like you're still striving for perfection? In some ways? Yes. I think most of our 
our, our most powerful and loudest inner voices never go away completely. We just more change our relationship with them. You know, mine, mine is very much rooted in, in my dad's way of, of showing me the, showing his love and expressing his love was to show me the quote unquote right way to do things. And, and that would, you know, consist of, I don't know, for example, when I was five years old, I'm all excited. I'm washing the dishes. You know, I'm standing on my little wooden stool. I can barely reach the sink and you know, I'm excited. There's bubbles flying everywhere. And, you know, dad comes in and says, wow, that's, that's great, son. That's really cool that you're doing the dishes. But just so you know, it's the friction of the brush that gets the food off the plate. You don't need to use the hot water and you don't need to run the water on full blast. You're just wasting money, water, electricity. All right. And as you can imagine, that's very defeating for a five-year-old. And, but he was, he was just trying to show me how to be the most efficient, effective human being. That's, that's something that was important to him and, and he thought was passing on to his son. And, and that pattern, unfortunately, for me was led to just a very, very much a lack of confidence. And, and he's very analytical, left-brained, extremely bright. And I'm more this impulsive, creative, all over the place kind of kid. And, and so those th- those clashing personalities and my striving to be that kind of perfect and be that analytical person that he was, was just not attainable for me. And so I was just constantly striving for that and, and then being frustrated when I couldn't be that thing. So that definitely started early. Is that something that you talk to these affluent families about when you go in and, and talk with them with your con- coaching and consulting work? Absolutely. The One of the most common things with especially entrepreneurs and executives is, is they're all inherently good problem solvers, especially entrepreneurs entrepreneurs that are constantly thinking outside the box. It's like their superpower is solving problems. And so when their kids start to have problems, they jump in and solve the problems for the kids. Uh, And not only does it undermine the child's self-esteem, but it doesn't teach the child how how to solve problems for themselves. They're denying their children the very superpower that allowed them to be successful. And is there a generational piece with that? Like, what's that old saying? It's the the first generation makes the money, the second generation wastes it, and the third generation finds it again or something. I don't know, whatever those phrases are. That's, that's close. So first generation starts the business, second generation grows the business, and the third generation basically blows the money. <laughs> okay. So some would say that it is easier when you have money. And this is actually, I did a video on being resilient every day and as which would make sense with the resiliency ninja movement that I'm, I'm working to create. And I got some pushback from people and they said, well, it's easy for you to say you you know, they think I have lots of money and they think, you know, that it's easier with money. And I think that people, that's a, that's a often something that people will say, well, when you have money, it will be better. It'll be easier. It'll be all of these wonderful things as if it's a magic bullet. And what do you want to say to that? Is that true? So coming from money is, is not a gift when it comes to resiliency. If anything, it's quite the opposite when you don't want for much and certainly don't need anything, uh, when you're not placed in situations or your family isn't placed in situations that require a lot of resiliency, that sort of tenacious grit and perseverance just isn't learned by accident. And so you get into the real world and then you find out that that's not the way things operate and you don't have that experience. You don't have that depth of personal knowledge 
to know that when things get hard, that you can rebound and that you can be resilient. And so it really serves as a disadvantage for a lot of people is that they, you know, let's say the money goes away, right? If you come from money and then all of a sudden, let's say your family loses, loses its fortune or you, they send you out into the real world and say, look, you're on your own. And the, the child from this affluent family really struggles because they don't know or understand resilience, they're going to be a mess. They're going to be absolutely lost. Whereas if you take someone from a, a background that requires resilience, you know, not coming from a place of money or financial means, that resilience is, is then hardwired. And so they can have money come or go, and they're going to be okay because they have that resilience. Whereas with somebody, again, who comes from money, that money goes, all of a sudden they're lost in the wind and they really struggle and, and you know, head south quickly in terms of towards disaster or, or just absolute overwhelm and implosion. And when you couple that experience, so not needing, I think that's interesting, not needing anything, like having your basic needs met, having that confidence of security and all of that. So a couple of that with having parents who are entrepreneurial often, and as you mentioned earlier, really great problem solvers. I would imagine that when the child has any sort of a hiccup, like a school, they get a B instead of an A plus, right? Uh, the, the parent swooping in, that may be a really bad example, but the parent swoops in. How would you get a parent in your coaching to actually stop swooping in? Uh, that, I mean, that's a, that's a longer, longer process, right? Because part of it is fear driven, right? The parents are afraid. So it's, it's really addressing that fear in a meaningful way that, look, your, your kid's going to be fine if they don't get this, this A. If anything, they're going to learn more from getting a B than they are from getting an A. And if you look at entrepreneurs, I mean, I th- think it's like 70 or 80% of them never finish college, right? So if you start looking at some of the data that supports you know, that your kids are going to be fine. It's a, it's a bigger philosophical conversation, but there's also the ego component and the parent shaming that occurs. So if you let your kid fail, like that, that reflects poorly on you. So helping the parent really understand and cope with their own ego and getting that out of the way, you know, that the child needs to find their own true north and and be supported on that journey versus trying to be something for the parents. That's an involved, involved issue that, that doesn't necessarily break down to just one or two things. And I suppose it would start with the self-awareness of even recognizing that they're swooping in because I don't think, and, and I don't think this, this topic, by the way, of swooping in and trying to save everything with your child and spare your child issues is just reserved for affluent families. I'm watching, I don't have the blessing of having real children yet. I mean, I have, I have a dog who's a fur baby, who's not a child, obviously. And, but I look at my friends and get to be a part of their, you know, just watching from the sidelines as they're raising children. And it's very obvious to me that some of my friends are very good at allowing their child to build resilience whereas others are very much trying to create this perfect image. And it can be really heartbreaking to watch the kid not get that resilience learning. And it was, so would you say that like it is, it's for all families that this happens? It is, you know, we live in a very fear, fear driven society and, and rightfully so, you know, every time you turn on the news, there's something horrific happening and, and we're no longer just privy to the horrific or, or frightening things that happen in our little community. Like we used to be now it's, you know, we're, we're painfully aware of every murder or kidnapping or burglary 
within a you know five thousand mile radius versus just hey you know we've never had a murder in our little small town ever so that prominence of, of fear is just not ever present and and there's just this belief uh, I feel that that kids are are not as as capable as they really are there's a story I heard not too long ago and it was it was uh, this guy was trying to park his massive RV it was like 40 feet long or something in this this small spot and he just couldn't do it. And the parking lot attendant finally came over and was like, do you want help with that? And the guy's like, uh, yeah, if you can park this thing. And he's like, yeah, no problem. He hops in and parks this thing, you know, first try easy as could be. And then the guy asked the attendant, he says, you know, how do you know how to do that? And he said, Oh, when I was 10 years old in Brazil, I used to drive my dad's bus route when he couldn't make it to work. <laughs> 10 years old driving a bus. Right. And we're worried a kid can't walk to the, to the bus stop by themselves. Yeah. That that's wild. Yeah, but there's but there's 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 rightfully so there's there's a, just a, a different presence and and notion of fear for kids. So I think people are are more concerned about that thing, but I also think it is a lot of parent shaming and that you're not a good parent if you don't if your kid isn't, you know, perfect or isn't doing x y or z. I mean, you go to a science fair these days, it's hilarious instead of being like Wow, little Johnny did a great job on his science project. It's like, man, Johnny's mom really showed up in 2018, right? Because they just do all the projects for the kids. And it's like, to what end, right? They're all trying to get them off into some perfect college and and then go to some perfect job. And it's just, it's it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And you've got to imagine what is the future for those kids. So I'll share a story of someone in my life who had a daughter who was really a star hockey player. Big aspirations. Let's make the Olympic team. Ultimately, she's not going to make that, I don't think. And in order to facilitate all of her hockey practices and games and travel, the mother wrote 90% of her papers. So like for English class and her essays, the mother wrote it. So it's like science fair, one thing, but actually the day-to-day assignments, her mom was doing her homework. And then she goes off to university and she's writing the thesis. And it's just how is that setting kids up for the future? It's not like, isn't that just a horrible story? It is. And it's, it's, it's extremely common. You know, the, the concept that I focus on is hard, easy versus easy, hard. And I work on this with kids. I work on this with parents. I work on this with anyone, really. But the concept is you can take the hard route and it'll be easy in the long run, or you can take the easy route and it'll be hard in the long run. And the easiest example of that is washing dishes. So a lot of times, you know, we do father-son retreats, for example. I just got back from hosting two of those back-to-back in Park City, Utah. And and one of the exercises I, I do with the uh, with the fathers and the sons is is teaching them this hard easy concept. And so what I do is I take I take plates from the the night before at dinner and let them sit out all night, right? And then I I ask them in the morning after they finish breakfast to come in and clean the dishes from last night. And they of course you know suffer through this and you know it's extremely difficult and a pain in the butt because this food is sat all night and stuck to the plate. Right. And I time them. And then I say, okay, now uh, go ahead and wash your dishes from breakfast. And it takes them two seconds. Right. And then they have that experiential element of taking the hard route 
hey, I don't feel like doing the dishes right now. Uh, you know, I'm tired. I'm full. You know, we've all been through this. We've all done this. But then the result of that is it's going to be harder. It's going to take us longer to clean those dishes. Or we can do it right away. And then it's way easier. And the same thing with this is, is parents can take the, the easy route and, you know, have their kid appear to be perfect and get them through to, to college with straight A's and a million extracurricular activities. But then their kids, for the most part, what we see is can't sustain that success. And so they get out into the real world and they don't know how to act on their own because they've never been given the self-confidence or the self-esteem because when parents do all these things for their kids, they're either consciously or subconsciously telling their kids they don't believe that their kids can do it themselves. Do the kids, because you're working with both the children and the parents in your practice Mm -hmm. and the retreats and everything. Do the kids see it happening? Uh, Depends on the kid. Okay. Like, do they, are they longing for the challenge? Like, do they want their parent to stop expecting this or do they just live up to the challenge of trying to be perfect and then they they go turn to drugs they turn to whatever numbing agent they can in order to balance out that expectation it really varies so much i I can't give you a, a specific answer i will say one of the most powerful things a parent can ask their kids is what expectations do you feel i have of you that i don't verbalize right so what expectations do I have a view that I don't verbalize? And depending on the nature of the relationship, you might get a BS answer or you might not get an answer at all or an I don't know, but it's a question worth continuing to ask and and looking at what is the underlying relationship to get to a place where they can give you an honest answer, which is something we work on families with. But but getting to that place, it can be really telling because, you know, you think about your own parents, right? What were their expectations of you that they never verbalized? And I can't tell you how often, you know, I'll talk to kids and they think, you know, well, I've got to get perfect grades and I got to get into a good college. And then I talk to the parents and, and they don't actually feel that way. They just, they, that doesn't matter to them. That's not important to them. They just want the kids to be fulfilled and, and happy and, and successful in their own way. And so then that opens up the opportunity for that conversation. And and even when the parents say that to the kids, depending on how deep-seated that belief is, it takes some time to kind of unravel that and, and really show the children that, no, that isn't the most important thing to your parents. They're not just saying that this isn't important. This isn't a trap. This isn't a trick. Like this is, this is something that that they don't feel is critical to your, you know, fulfillment and happiness in life. And, and that's a hard thing for a lot of the kids to, to process. Well, I would imagine it's even harder to really figure out where that unspoken expectation is coming from. Because it's one thing to realize the kid has the ex- thinks that the expectation is there. I, as a parent, how would you figure out what cues you're giving that are making it happen? Asking, you know, seek, seek first to understand and then to be understood is a huge concept that we work on on a regular basis. You know, so much of the, the struggles within families are just misunderstandings or miscommunication and making assumptions. And, and so just asking, right, and, and, and ensuring that you have a relationship with your children where they can give you honest answers. They're not just telling you what you want to hear. How is social media playing a role in today's you know, acceleration of some of these issues that you're dealing with families with? Keeping up with the Joneses has become a much more prevalent thing because it's in your face all the time. I talk about a concept of front stage, backstage. 
So we're, we're comparing everything that goes on behind the scenes, right? Backstage, the chaos that's in our head and in our hearts. And, and we're comparing that with the best show that everyone else puts on, you know, with everyone else's front stage. And it's just a recipe for, for feeling inadequate and poor self-esteem and you name it, right? And, and so just bringing some awareness to that is powerful for kids. It's powerful for, for adults as well. But even equipped with that self-awareness, you know, you're still going to have some of that comparing yourself to others. And yeah, it can, it can be the social media can be a real it can be a useful tool. But in a lot of ways, I've, I've seen it be very destructive for families. If social media were around, I mean, this is a hypothetical, when you were 11 and going through what you started to go through, would that have been even harder? I would imagine it would have been, eh? The thing about social media, from my perspective, would have been, hmm, well, I don't know, that's a good question. How would it have been, been more difficult? Yeah, so I, I would say that it's the, the 24-7 element of social media that would have made things really difficult. So when I went through really painful or frustrating or challenging things at school or with people from school, that I could go home and and be away from that and allow my nervous system to recover in some way, shape or form versus being in that constant, you know, state of fight, flight or freeze that comes with those kind of experiences. And, And that's what I see with kids today is they don't have a time to recover. You know, they, they go home from being bullied, for example, and they're bullied, you know, every second of the day, there's, there's just no reprieve. And, and that weighs on any human being is certainly a, a child. Absolutely. I, I think when I was bullied as a kid, and when I did some bullying, I hate to admit, I was on both sides of the, the fence as a youngin in a small town. And I think that that would scare me today. If I knew how mean some of those mean girls were in my school, I wasn't one of the mean girls, mean, mean girls. To go home and still have that at eight o'clock at night would be, I, I don't even know how kids deal with it today. I think it's hard for some adults to even shut off. Now, I know that you are, you meditate, you swim, you're doing different things. How do you control now your, you know, your psyche and keep yourself primed on a day-to-day basis? So I I don't know. I I was going to say, I wish I could say, but that's not true. So I am, I'm not one of those that can, you know, do the exact same thing, you know, every morning or every day. And, you know, I talk to these people, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I have this morning routine that I've followed exactly for the last, you know, five, 10 years. That's just not the way I'm wired. I like variety. I like changing things up. And, and I used to really resist that. And it was exhausting. And so what I did is just learn to, to go with the flow of, of who I am in my personality. And, and so I try new systems and routines all the time. You know, right now I, I wake up, I run a mile with my dog, meditate, run a mile back, typically journal, do a five minute journal, nothing too crazy, you know, things I'm grateful for, things that would make today great and some affirmations. And then I might swim as well, just depending on what my day looks like. And, and then I go from there. Uh, and then in the evening, I try and meditate again. Uh, just to kind of close off the day. And, and I, I turn screens off by eight o'clock and allow myself that time to to just read or, or write or whatever that looks like. 
to really decompress uh, versus, you know, turning my phone off and going right to sleep. I've just read too many things on how that impacts sleep. And, and yeah, I, you know, I try and eat clean and I usually have a cheat day or cheat meal once a week, but otherwise I eat really clean. I do a lot of intermittent fasting and surround myself with good people and yeah that's that's how it looks now but you know ask me again in a week it might look completely different well and i think it's so brilliant that you're sharing that because i think a lot of entrepreneurs have felt this morning routine pressure and like for me my routine is that i have no routine right like Mm -hmm. i just it just doesn't work and i think seeing hearing somebody admit that there's the routine changes, I think, will give a lot of listeners a little bit of a reprieve from pressure that they need to have this perfect morning routine or daily routine to do things. And I think it's all about, you know, sort of ebbing and flowing with your body's rhythm and what do you feel like today and all of that. So that that's kind of neat. And you have the freedom to build your own schedule, it sounds like, with your business as well. Uh, I suppose when you're in re- you're very on though. Do you find it exhausting to run a retreat or is that invigorating? It's both. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of energy though. I'm kind of laughing to myself right now because I definitely found myself on the kitchen floor in the fetal position after the the last one, just needing some time to, to breathe and just relax. Cause I was just, yeah, it's, it's a lot. I mean, I, I really give it my all and, you know, holding that emotional energy for people and it's uh, yeah, it's a lot and it's physically demanding. We do a lot of cool stuff. I mean, this, this last one, we went, gosh, what did we do? Horseback riding, whitewater rafting. We went to the Olympic training park and did like bobsledding type stuff and tubing down these crazy ski jumps, which was really neat. And Nerf wars all the time. And, you know, hiking and you know so we're we're pretty much non-stop all day every day and it, that'll wear you out in itself and yeah the emotional components and it wipes me out but i love it it's uh, there's nothing better i'd do that all day every day Good. just so fulfilling i would imagine and impactful what, what kind of transitions do you see with your clients when you're doing that i mean night and day to have that kind of quality one-on-one time with with your son and to have those conversations you're not going to have on a regular basis to be overcoming adversity together i mean it just yeah every father and son needs to to be doing that one-on-one time and my recommendation is to do that at least once a quarter you know that's something that you plan ahead together you know the more that it's the kid's idea the better um and really Having that as something on the calendar that everybody's looking forward to, it just creates this very powerful experience, that one-on-one time. And then you can start building in cool elements to it uh, that I like to add of, you know, the kids responsible for figuring out the logistics. You know, how are we going to get there? What's the transportation? You know, what's what's the budget? What are we going to do for food? All those kind of things. And and as they age, that can become more and more involved. And then you can do things like, oh, guess what? Oh, you know, we can't take a plane. How are we going to get there? Or, you know, you name it. Or, hey, how much? How many hours would this take working minimum wage uh, to be able to afford something like this? And, you know, on and on it goes. And then you start building in those life skill learning opportunities in addition to that bonding time. And it's, it's extremely powerful. That sounds incredibly powerful. I, that, that sounds really neat. And I love the learning element of trusting the son or daughter to participate in the actual planning stages, because so often somebody, whoever's the leader and is the problem solver would just go ahead and get it booked 
or in some cases, you know, their assistant would book it instead of the child would be a part of it, right? So you obviously did some planning on creating that. That's really a neat experience, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask you this off air to know, but as your are your parents still alive? Are they still part of your day-to-day life? They are. Uh, they are. I have a, a fantastic relationship with my family. It's, you know, they've been supportive of, of my journey as I've had to figure these things out and, and you know, go through therapy and counseling and all those kind of things and, and sort out my own issues and, and my journey. And, and at first for them, it was hard when I was sharing these kind of things, as you can imagine. And But now, just like for me, I always encourage people to share their darkness or their, their challenges because really your, you know, your past is your power. I've, I've learned and benefited and grown so much from the struggles that I've had in my life. And I can only imagine what it would be like because temporarily I thought, well, you know, I'm going to go back to, to a normal life and, and pretend like this never happened and hide the fact that I've been to rehab or that I've been suicidal or any of this other stuff. And it's, I'm so grateful that I, I chose not to do that. And so that's why I always encourage people, the more open you are with those kind of things, because everyone's struggling in some way, shape or form, but it gives you so much more power to come from a place of, hey, this is who I am. This is what I've been through. You know, like it or not, this is who I am. There's so much power in that and just trying to hide things and, you know, wonder who knows what it's it's just not the way to go through life, in my opinion. Did you have anybody when you came out with your story? Obviously, you've got a community and people around you who at one point in your life were very judgy, judgy, and, you know, had those expectations and the keeping up with the Joneses. Was there any pushback? Was there anybody who was like, oh, I don't know if you should do that? Yes, there's, there's definitely people where it was you know, I, I'd share that, but I wouldn't share that part or, you know, uh, maybe leave that thing out or, and, you know, I, I mean, I, I still, I don't share everything with everyone just because I don't know, either I haven't been asked or haven't felt called to, but I think the overwhelming response was, was surprising to me because I thought I'd get more of that. I thought I'd get more judgment, but instead I've got more of an outpouring of love and understanding and sharing of similar circumstances. Or and that's the beautiful thing about what I get to do is I get up and I I'm vulnerable and I, I share my story and it gives other people a space to do the same. You know, people will come up to me after I speak and say, you know, I've never told anyone this, but. Or, you know, I really related to this because I went through this or my brother went through this or my sister, my mother, my father, my friend. And and the more we become comfortable talking about these uncomfortable things, the more we realize that everyone has shit. And and it's it's usually the most beautiful parts of people. You know, the most the most beautiful and courageous and creative people I know come from a lot of pain because they use that pain as their source of power and, and energy to really create and change the world. Awesome. Well, that, that's a good place. A high to leave it on, I, I believe. That was fantastic. Thank you very much for sharing with us and the Resiliency Ninja listeners out there. I know that they will appreciate this and uh, please be sure to share it. And Bradley, will you tell people where to reach you? What, what I, I know you're open to doing a call with people if they're in a situation with a, where they might be one of your prime prospects or would like to go on a retreat. Is that correct? Yeah, sure. You know, I'm always happy to, to have a conversation with folks and, and see if it's a good fit or certainly not a fit for everybody. And, and because of the nature of what we do, it's, you know, we, we only work with so many people uh, in a given year because there's only so much time and there's o- only so much I'm able to do while being able to, to really create a meaningful experience 
it's like I said, it's, it, I love it and it's invigorating, but there's a lot of energy that, that goes into it. But if, if they want to have a call, I'm, I'm happy to just shed some light or, or, or offer some, some other alternatives as well. Just richlegacy.com. I'm not, I'm not as, we aren't as active on social media at this point because I, I found that it, it was just taking away more energy from, from really focusing on, on the client experiences. I think we'll get back to that down the road, but you know, I certainly can still find some more information and blog posts and stuff on the website. Awesome. Well, that's great. I will uh, be sure to to have that link in the show notes. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can definitely click that link and learn more about Rich Legacy and Bradley Cowell will definitely shed some light on some really important topics. So thanks very much, Bradley, for sharing. Thanks to you for listening and being a part of the Resiliency Ninja community. Thank you for tuning in to Resiliency Ninja with Allison Graham. We are thrilled to have you as part of our community. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend it on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always connect with Allison at r-ninja.com and find important links to show notes. Thanks for listening. Until next time, embrace whatever obstacles come your way. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.